Jen. And this is Dom. And you're listening to 99% Chance of Wine Wine and Murder. (laughs) Hey everyone, welcome to episode three. That's super exciting. We are super excited to get this rolling. Yes. And we feel like we're like getting a little bit better every time. Hopefully. We're definitely taking all (laughs) the advice to heart. Yes. So how was your week, Dom? Uh, It was pretty good. Definitely needed these wine bottles tonight. I also needed the wine bottles tonight. It was kind of, even though it was like a short week, it was a long week. Long week. Yeah. It's like short weeks equal extra long weeks. Yeah, because I think, I feel like it's like a full moon every day. Yeah. And everyone is crazy. Everyone is I mean, we might be the crazy ones. Who knows? I'm not, I'm not crazy. Me neither. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So tonight we're drinking uh, Voga, which is my favorite wine, and I think found out that it's also Dawn's favorite wine, Which so that's did exciting. not know. Yeah, so that's super cool. Um, should Do you think we should get right into it tonight? Sure. I think we have some pretty cool murders we want to talk about. I think you have about. to go first this time, right? I think it is my turn. Okay, so my murder is Alan Laguerre. Ooh. Um, and so, basically, he was known as the Monster of Miramichi, which is in the region of New Brunswick. Uh, he became the object of one of the most intense manhunts in modern Canadian history. Really? Yeah. So in 1987, the year I was born, <laughs> uh, so he was 38 at the time, and he was convicted for his role in a 1986 murder of John Glendening, an elderly storekeeper, um, and, his, um, and his wife, who was not killed, but she was also beaten and sexually assaulted. <gasps> That's so sad. Yeah. So, he was sentenced to life imprisonment and was put into the Atlantic Institution, which was a maximum security penitentiary in New Brunswick. Love New Brunswick. I'm, I'm from the East Coast. Dom's so. from the East Coast. <laughs> I don't know why I keep, like, going, ah, to I like, like it. It's okay. Keep it okay. up. <laughs> so, I guess, during the trial, um, he had tried to, no, I guess he successfully picked open his handcuffs in a failed attempt. What? To escape, right? And But the prison administrators, when he was put in this prison, weren't made aware of this happening. So this is going to be a key thing okay. in this story. Ooh. So just remember. So I guess he was kept in segregation for um, a lot of the time while he was there. And he ended up creating a really good relationship with the staff. So later, the warden said that um, he had sort of like a Jekyll and Hyde personality, but he kept it hidden while he was in prison. So he was like very charismatic and he like made them all his friend. So on May 3rd, 1989, unarmed guards, let me just be clear, they were unarmed, yeah. escorted him to the hospital because he complained he had an ear infection. What? Yeah. So we told them he had to use the bathroom and they're like, yeah, you know what? You do you. No problem. <laughs> so they escorted him, uh, let him go in there by himself, though, into the bathroom by himself. So he then picked his handcuffs and his foot shackles and emerged with a homemade knife that he had concealed on him. Oh, my God. So they didn't even check him when they left the prison. Well, sorry, what year did you say this happened in? 1989. Fuck. So he obviously got out of the room because he had a knife and the guards were unarmed. That's so scary. So he ran out to the parking lot and he abducted Peggy Olive at knife point and fled in her car. She was later released unharmed. Um, 
But his escape was all of a sudden followed by a rash of assaults, robberies, and auto thefts. And then, I mean, he was considered a suspect in all of them. Mm -hmm. So then nothing really happened until the night of May 28th. Emergency response teams in Chatham, New Brunswick, a town on the Marabinchi River, were dispatched to the home of Annie Flam, who was 75, and her sister-in-law, Nina, who was 61. And they were owners of a small neighborhood grocery store. Mm. So the upper part of the house was in flames, and then firefighters found Nina semi-conscious at the foot of the stairway. And then Annie's remains were found in, like, her bedroom, and it was, like, all fire damaged. What? So both victims were severely beaten and raped. So, the fire investigators determined that an intruder had deliberately set a blaze to the house to destroy the crime scene, but forensic investigators retrieved hair and semen specimens that they hoped to be tested for DNA, but at the time, the science of DNA in criminal investigations was still super new, so like the institute in Toronto that did all of this wasn't even open yet. Oh, really? So, they just kind of held on to them because they couldn't test them yet. So, um, the RCMP then took over the investigation and saw similarities in that murder and, like, the murder he was originally convicted Mm -hmm. of. So, he was the principal suspect, but they couldn't actually prove... That he had done it. That he had done it, right? Because they they couldn't test his DNA yet. So, then on June 2nd, uh, a Chatham contractor uh, found a pair of men's glasses at a site he was landscaping at, which was very near... To an occupant, an occup, sorry, an occupant's home, who had surprised and chased away a burglar the previous day. The glasses were identical to the ones that Laguerre had been wearing at the time of his escape from custody. So obviously. Yeah. So then, Crime Stoppers put out um, a two thousand dollar reward for information leading to his uh, arrest. So police received tips that had that he had been seen, you know, as far as Fredericton and Toronto, but they still believe that he was in that Miramichi region. Mm-hmm. And and then the district was plagued by like a lot more violent incidents. So I didn't mention at first, but I should say that he was on the run for two hundred and one days after he escaped. Before they caught him, yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's insane. Which is that's a long time. To considering be. he stayed like. This whole time, like, he stayed in the region that he was in that whole time. And it's not a big area. Right. So, like, I don't think that... I mean, I think that they're small towns, right? So, there's not a huge So, like, where was he presence. hiding? Do you know where he was hiding? No, they don't know. They think that someone was likely, like, sheltering him. But, I mean, they never really found out... Right. Who. Who. That's insane. So, then, I guess on September 30th... So, nothing really happened for a couple of months. And then, September 30th, Morrissey Dorian, uh, who was 70, who lived in the Miramichi town of Newcastle, was shot in his back when he was confronted... Sorry, when he confronted an intruder in his home. Mm-hmm. So, the next day, an armed assailant broke into a Newcastle home of a senior couple, Edwin and Evangeline Russell, and viciously assaulted them. So, then, two weeks later... On November 14th in the morning, a Newcastle volunteer firefighter saw smoke coming from the home of these two sisters, Linda and Donna Dotney, who were 41 and 45. So he sent out a call for help and rushed into the burning house. And then police and uh, firefighters quickly responded to it. Yeah. So the bodies of both sisters were found inside. One of them was like fucking tucked into her bed, which is so creepy. That's weird. So, both had been badly beaten and raped. Investigators found that a bulb on the back door light had partially been unscrewed from the socket. Mm-hmm. And the crime scene 
uh, basically duplicated the first, like, the Flam murder with the, the woman and her sister-in-law. Right. Um, so, obviously, again, they he thought. was a prime suspect. And then they found out that he had a relationship with one of the women that they found in this house, Linda. Oh, really? Previously. Like so a current again, relationship or past? Past relationship. Um, so, yeah, they must have dated at some point, they figured out. So now, like, everyone in that region was just fucking terrified. Yeah, as they should be, especially yeah. women. Well, exactly. And, like, and elderly, elderly, right? So residents, um, yeah, like I said, residents believe that he was being sheltered by someone. So parents kept their kids indoors, and Halloween trick-or-treating that year was canceled. Aww. So people who lived alone, um, mostly seniors, they ended up moving and staying with relatives or neighbors because they, I mean, obviously, obviously he was targeting them. To happen, yeah. So then additional police officers joined the manhunt. The Crime Stoppers jumped their reward to $10,000. Holy. So from two to 10000 like, that's crazy. Yeah. So, I mean, it was a small town. It was in the late 80s, so people didn't really lock their doors then. People were locking their doors now. Can I just say, my husband still doesn't lock our doors. Oh my god, I am, like, so crazy about it. I am like, must lock my door. Every single day. I and then I lie in bed, I'm like, did I lock it? And then yeah. I'll, like, walk to the front, even though I'm so comfortable in my bed, to make sure, like, my door yeah. is locked. Because you don't want to die. No. Totally. I don't I always have to check with Nate. I'm like, did you lock the door? <laughs> no. Go lock it. <laughs> Get out of bed right now. I'm going to lock the fucking front Every door. Every single time. Like, I'm not going to die because some Listen, crazy person is checking the doors. Like, if they're going to murder me, like, they have to work for it. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Like, they can't just fucking walk through my front door. That's I totally not, agree. It's not what's going to happen here. Um. Okay, so then... Uh, and I guess some people, like, even just went on and bought guns, which, fair. I would do that. So, on the evening of November 16th, a parishioner went to a priest's residence at the Blessed Virgin Mary Church in Chatham Head, New Brunswick. After 69-year-old Father James Smith failed to show up for Mass, he found the priest's body battered on the floor, spattered with blood. Oh, my God. So, he just killed a priest... Obviously, he doesn't care about going no, to heaven. Does not care. Well, does does not care about at all anyone. <clears throat> basically, I mean, so like I guess the rectory safe was um, broken into, um, and Smith's car was missing. Wow. So the priest's car. So then, Crime Stoppers after that raised the reward to fifty thousand dollars. But I mean, the leads that people were. I mean, people started calling. If it's fifty thousand dollars. Yeah. You know, anybody's saying? calling saying they saw him. Yeah. Then on the night of November 23rd in St. John, he hijacked a taxi at gunpoint and told the driver to take him to Moncton. But, I mean, it was in November, so there was, like, blowing snow and icy roads, and it made the driving really treacherous. So I guess the cab driver lost control of the vehicle and plunged into a snowbank at one point. Mm-hmm. So then, he waved, so then um, Alan waved down a passing car whose driver, Ms. Michelle Mercer, was an off-duty RCMP officer. But he had a gun, so we took both of them into her, her car. Oh, my God. And told her to drive to Moncton. Um, so, obviously, again, there was a blinding snowstorm, and she lost her way. And she eventually pulled into a gas station near Sussex, New Brunswick, for fuel. And there, she was able to get her and the cab driver out, and they, like, made an escape. Yeah. So, then, I, then Alan decided to hijack a transport truck. And told the driver, again, to take him to Moncton. I don't know what was in Moncton that he needed to passionately get there so badly. Yeah. Uh, so then 
at that same time, the police officer had reached an emergency telephone and she was able to call like the police station and they ended up setting up roadblocks and everything. So on the, this is crazy. On the morning of November 24th, police stopped this truck near Newcastle and he just fucking surrendered without what? a struggle. Like didn't, no struggle. After 201 days? Yeah. Maybe he was just tired. He's probably like, he's like, I said, I I murdered a bunch of people and I'm just so tired now. I'm just so tired of living my life. (laughs) (laughs) But what was cool is by the time um, that he had his trial in 1991, uh, the DNA lab in Toronto was open. So they were able to use his DNA. Oh, wow. To convict him. So... Which, what I, what I thought was very intriguing about this is that he, it was one of the first instances in Canadian judicial history where DNA evidence contributed to a conviction. Wow. Which is, that's, that's really pretty cool. interesting. That's pretty cool. So, I mean, he was classified as a dangerous offender. So, under Canada, so he was, he's considered likely to reoffend kind of mm-hmm. thing. So, that's what they kind of classified him as. Right. Uh, and so, he was imprisoned in the maximum... Uh, security penitentiary um, in Quebec, but in 2015, oh my God. he was transferred to the maximum security prison in Edmonton. What? Yeah, that's so close. It's so close. Oh, so man. that's where he's at. That's really creepy. Yeah, right. Better not be very good at breaking any handcuffs anymore. I know, like, maybe they should always have armed guards around him and actually check him over for things that he could break out of his handcuffs with. Yeah, and not transport him anywhere. He just sits in the cell. Yeah, so I thought that was, like, pretty crazy. Like That is cool. That is really cool. I mean, I don't like that he's so close. Well, now he's close. He, was, he used to be far away, but now he's super close. He should stay far, far, far away. All right. Do you just have one story today, Jen, or... Yeah, I just have the one today. Okay. My turn. So as I'm sure you can all guess, one of Jen's and I's favorite times of year is right around the corner. So I figured for my next few stories that all of my murders would be those that have previously taken place on Halloween night. For my Halloween nightmare, I will be telling that of California's peaceful Napa City's gruesome murder of two young female roommates. Napa City is known for being a quiet community, perfect for those with families, so for many young people, this would not be an ideal city to live in. But for Adrienne Exania, a civil engineer, and Lauren Minza, an athlete with a political science degree, this is the perfect city for them to start their young careers in. For such a quiet city, No murders had taken place previously for over two to four years, making this double homicide even more striking. The pair decided to rent a house together and go about their lives, but shortly after living together, a third roommate moved in with them. This would be 26-year-old Leslie Mazzara from South Carolina, who was described as bubbly and was previously a beauty pageant competitor. The kinship between the three women worked nicely in their favor, creating a very comforting living environment. A place that they could come home to, feeling loved, welcomed, with someone to always discuss their daily endeavors with. 
The women had never brought any of their boyfriends back to their place until Mazara invited her current fling back to their house on October 28, 2004. This was not an issue besides their lovemaking keeping both roommates awake all night. The roommates did not make a fuss about this. I would be pissed. <laughs> and Means that even reported in an interview, I didn't put much thought into it, but I figured in the back of my head that yes, people would be coming over. So, I mean, obviously, they weren't too upset, but I'm sure they weren't too happy about it either. <laughs> so, a couple days later, on October 31st, Exania and Mazara handed out candy to all the kids in their quiet neighborhood, what anyone would assume to be an ordinary Halloween night. Once the young women were done, they both went to bed. Little did they know that their murderer, who had already plotted this evil plan, was standing outside their house casually smoking his favorite cigarettes. Fucking crazy. I know. Just, just standing just up there. Just like staring, like was he like staring into their fucking house? There was no, like nobody knows, like they don't know like how long he was out there for. Uh, but enough time to smoke a yeah, couple like, of cigarettes. Yeah, just literally be like, is there someone standing outside my fucking house right Especially now? on Halloween night, you think you'd be a little on edge. Uh. So as Menza slept in her basement bedroom with her dog, he let out a bark causing her to realize something had tripped the back garage light to come on. Believing that there was nothing out of the ordinary, Lauren began drifting off to sleep with her dog when he let out another bark. This time, she heard someone creeping into the house and began walking up their stairs. Lauren again relaxed and began drifting off to sleep, thinking that this must have been Mazara's boyfriend sneaking over to have another lovemaking session. As Menza drifted off into a peaceful sleep, she was quickly alerted back to reality when she heard blood-curdling screams coming from her upstairs roommates. Not knowing what was happening, she went to her bedroom door and creeped it open to step out. However, at this point, somebody, became, somebody began bounding down the staircase. Quickly, she stepped out into their backyard away from the intruder and found herself totally trapped in the backyard with six-foot fences, praying she would not come face-to-face -face with the murderer from upstairs. As she hid in the yard, she could hear the intruder struggling inside the house and the rustling of their blinds, when all of a sudden, everything went completely quiet. Hiding in the darkness, she could hear her roommate, Adrienne, who was clearly in pain, calling for help. Bravely, Menza crept back inside the house, not knowing if the intruder was still inside, and tried calling 911 for help but quickly realized that the kitchen phone was dead. It never said if this was like a coincidence or if the guy who broke in did this. Um, so instead she decided to climb the stairs in hopes of helping her friends. She was not prepared for what she was about to see. Upon entering the bedroom, she could see her roommate Mazara face down in a pile of clothes with upper body stab wounds not moving while Adrian was huddled in a corner behind her bed and in complete shock from the excessive stab wounds covering her body. Menza turned around, heading down the stairs, and quickly grabbed her cell phone, fleeing the house to call police in her car as she drove away. Inzania was already dead when police arrived, as Mazara clung to what little life she had left. Unfortunately, she had also succumbed to her injuries before paramedics could assess her damage. In the following days, the crime scene was processed over and over again by the police, looking for any evidence to the murder and why it took place. They had found some blood at the kitchen window of a, of a European descendant male, but were unable to find any matches after a thousand individuals 
were interviewed and over 200 DNA samples were taken in the area. Lauren stated, it turned my world into looking around and having suspicion about everybody. I was thinking everybody was a suspect, (laughs) any of my friends. Yeah. On the scene, many different items were taken in to be looked at, as well as cigarette butts. This was kind of overlooked, but a while later in the investigation, police did decide to take a closer look at the cigarette butts mm-hmm. and found on um, and found that they actually matched the DNA that w- the blood was on the window. Oh, great. Yeah, I mean... So, like, a little part to leave out? Super random. They could have figured it out probably a lot earlier than they did, but... After the killer's choice of cigarette was released to the public, the murderer's family and friends recognized the brand um, because I guess cigarette brands were all coming out at new capacities back then and the kind that he smoked was uh, only four months on the market and he smoked them excessively. So it was none other than Eric Koppel, a friend of Adrian's who had previously helped the roommates move into their house with his significant other, Lily Prudholm, who was at the time Adrian's best friend. I know, I know. This came as a huge shock to Menza, who did not understand why Eric would commit such heinous acts, stating that Eric was very shy, very quiet, and not social at all. Eric played the part of a grieving friend well. Get this, this is just fucked up. He went to the funeral and the vigils with his wife, Lily, to support her loss, even going as far to invite Nzanya's mother, Arlene Allen, to read a quote from the Bible at their wedding in memory of her now-murdered baby girl. I know, all the while, like, he was sitting there knowing that. He fucking he, killed them. He killed her. Oh, my God. During the hearings, Adrian's mother, Arlene, went on to say, I never felt that he was dangerous. I never felt any kind of negative, dangerous, or sinister vibe from him at all. In a very emotional impact statement read by Adrian's mother, Arlene, she stated, Eric, you knew Adrian, and Eric, I know you. I know that you are a man who brutally and callously took the life of a wonderful woman you never met, which she referred, like, Mazara. You were the one who violently stabbed to death the best friend of the woman you loved. You cannot love Lily and murder her best friend. You cannot love Lily and bring a knife into Adrian's home and stab her again and again and again and again and yet again, Alan said, slamming her fists on the podium each time she thundered again. My baby never wore a turtleneck in her life, and yet she had to be buried in one, and still it could not hide the extent of her wounds. Alan continued, You are the man who is so cruel as to invite me, the mother of the woman you murdered, to stand up at your wedding, to read scripture to you of love and death, and to bless your union. Throughout the weekend, you brought me into your heart and the heart of your family, knowing all the while it was you who destroyed mine. So I say to you, Eric, go. Leave this world of family and friends, of hopes and of dreams and of life and of love and laughter. There is no place for you here. Alan said, directing her words at Koppel, who clasped his hands on the table and hung his head. You will be forgotten, and when the door closes behind you today, I will think of you no more. Which I mean is, I think is really strong of her mom to say, because a lot of people 
say the opposite, you know, about how it's going, it's ruining their life. But I think it's really important not to let murderers yeah. know that they destroyed you like that. Yeah. So next to take the stand was Mazara's mother, Harrington, who without breaking eye contact, stared her daughter's murderer down throughout her 10-minute speech. She stated, I know. <laughs> she stated, I demand resurrection for Leslie. It was her dream to meet her perfect partner and have four boys, babies that I will never hold in my arms. Harrington said, for the rest of your life, you and your family will experience what both your victims and loved ones have felt. Terror, depression, hopelessness, violence. I wish I could tell you that I forgive you. At this time, I cannot. And finally, I pray that never again will any mother's child grow up to be a murderer. During the court hearings, Eric pleaded guilty to killing both women and was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. He waived his right to an appeal um, in order to escape the death penalty. Eric finally gave a speech to the family of his victim, stating, I am a broken man. I cannot fathom an explanation for my sinful deeds. The terrible agony inflicted upon a great number of people. Words evade me, Koppel said. He told the audience he has suffered from depression and has been suicidal since he was an adolescent. Speaking of the events leading up to the murder of Exania and Mazara, Koppel said, I've always been an introverted person. My beloved grandfather suffered a stroke and died. I could not secure gainful employment. Which, I mean, I don't know why any of this has to do with what he did. But no. he also said, my relationship with Lily was in jeopardy and crashing. It was all like it fertilized the seed of anger in my heart. There okay, was, but why does that mean you have to like murder a bunch of oh, people? Oh, I know. There was rage inside me. If I had only listened to those who pleaded with me to get help I needed. Continuing, he looked onto the families of the deceased and said, Arlene, Kathy, I am so sorry for stealing your beloved Arlene and Leslie. Paul, Andy, Lexi, and Allison, I am so sorry for taking your precious sister from you. Although a clear reason for the murders were never given, Eric's wife, Lily, professed her support and love for him, claiming, I knew a gentler Eric, and blamed the majority of his actions on the state of his depression and the substance abuse. When I was reading that, I just thought it was completely insane that he took something really in the grand scheme of things that was minor going on in his life and just ripped apart two entire families. Plus, not to mention, like, the third roommate, Lauren, who yeah. could imagine what she had to go through in those well, months. no kidding. Yeah. So, yeah. That is my murder. Jesus. I know. That's crazy. I was just thinking maybe if he did actually end up going to get help, then those two ladies would still be alive. But he kept turning down the help whenever anybody offered it to him. I don't know. You don't know, right? Like, he could have... I mean, if he was going to murder people, like, it might not have been those two. Yeah. But it might have been someone else. You know what I'm saying? Like, he could have got help to get over, like, his anger with her, but doesn't mean he's going to get over his anger with somebody else. Well, and I was thinking, too, maybe he, like, because it does say that his relationship with his wife was in jeopardy. So maybe, like, he was just super jealous of her friendship with her best friend and hated her because of that. Okay, well, make sure you and Nate are always good. (laughs) (laughs) JK! (laughs) Oh, that's crazy. I know. 
It's insane. Um, so I was, um, so my, this week my friend Jacqueline reminded me of, uh, the Paul, Paul Bernardo case. Yes. And it's definitely something I want to cover probably in the next few episodes because of the fact that he's up for fucking parole in, in February. What? Parole. There's no way. I don't know. Because he just, they found a shank recently in his cell and he fucking got away with it. They're like, yeah, someone planted that in there. Oh you're, my god! You're in confinement all the time because people want to murder you in jail. And he's how do you just get someone to like? I don't know. I don't know. And he's literally killed so many people. Well, and I mean Carla's out. Ugh. So she like, has a child now, and she like lives in Montreal, and she was apparently volunteering at a school there. What? Don't they do background checks? I would be terrified. Hi, she just murdered with her husband a bunch of girls, plus her sister. Oh my god. I am just so angered by that. I don't know, I just, like, he's killed so many people, I don't know how he would even already be up for parole. I think he's been in there for 25 years, though. Did he only get 25 years? I think it was, like, 25 per years with, um... And then it was, like, possibility of parole kind of thing. Because that's what cannabis was. Oh, yeah. It says here, Bernardo postpones day parole hearing until 2018. So, yeah, he must be, yeah, he must be getting paroled right away. That's fucked up. I hope he doesn't get out. Huh. Well, always remember, everyone, keep your wine glasses full. And don't get murdered.